0: Turn to somebody and ask them if they're happy. Go ahead and turn to somebody and say, Are you happy? Talk to each other. Some of you are afraid to talk, not very happy. Answer each other then. Are you happy? Yes or no? Why or why not? You're saying, Why in the world do you make us do that? Just because I like to? I don't know. Here's why I do that because one out of three of you say you're happy. In our country, literally one out of three people say they're happy. In fact, studies say this, that the United States of America isn't even in the top 10 when it comes to countries in the world. We're not even in the top 10 when it comes to people being happy. Beyond that, we kind of took this survey further, and it said the United States of America at all-time low in terms of happiness index. seems like happiness is in short supply. We said, well, if it's an all-time low in our country, it might be good to know where to live, right? And so last week we said, if you want to be around some happy people in our country, you might want to move to Minnesota, right? That's where the happiest people in the United States of America live, in Minnesota. I have no idea why. That's just what the study said, right? But here's what we know, that we all want to be happy, and very few of us experience it. And we would say this, that some of us that experience it, maybe we're lying about it, or maybe happiness for us, is something that we have one minute and can't get a hold of the next, right? It flees from us pretty quickly. That's why we're having this conversation. Seems like a pretty relevant conversation for us to have. And what surprised some of you last week was this, is that when you look at Jesus, he's a preacher, right? His very first recorded sermon, the beginning of that sermon was all about what it means to be happy. That's interesting, isn't it? It's a very familiar to some of you section of the Bible because it's something called the Beatitudes. Some of you have heard it, right? And why in the world is it called Beatitudes? Because Beatitude is simply Latin for the word blessed, right? And Jesus in this first section of this sermon uses the word blessed Nine times. And so last week we said, well, we better figure out what it means to be blessed, or some of us learned it, blessed, right? We better figure out what in the world that means, and all it means is this, is to be happy or blissful. It's this deep sense of satisfaction and contentment that is somehow independent of external circumstances. It's like this deep peace, this deep satisfaction that isn't dependent on everything going right around me. I don't know about you, that sounds pretty good to me, right? And so Jesus is going to preach this first part of his sermon, and he's going to use that word nine times. And so we're going to lean in and say, okay, I'm wondering what in the world the secret is to being happy or blessed according to Pastor Jesus, according to the preacher Jesus. And so last week, we just started, right? We said he's going to take these nine statements, and he's going to thread them together like a pearl necklace. They all go together. We're ripping them apart so we can put them back together at the end, right? And so last week, we just looked at this. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here's the way we learned it. You ought to go listen to it if you weren't here. Simply this, Jesus is saying this. He's saying, happy are those who are poor spiritual beggars. That's what he's saying. The word that he uses is very graphic descriptive. Happy are the poor spiritual beggars. Why? Because only poor spiritual beggars, remember this, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And only poor spiritual beggars will experience the happiness of the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because only poor spiritual beggars have their life in a posture where they can receive from the king. That's the point. Literally, a poor spiritual beggar says, if I don't have somebody to have mercy on me and fill these empty hands, this empty life, I'm going to die. That's what it means to be a poor spiritual beggar. And so Jesus, we said last week, is the king, and he wants to fill those empty hands. We've got to realize there's nothing in them. We've got to stick those hands out, and that's the way we enter the kingdom. That's the way we have a relationship with God, because that's the only way we can understand what it means for him to pay my debt. This is all by way of last week. But once I become a Christ follower, I've got to realize I'm spiritually dependent. I don't all of a sudden become independently wealthy, spiritually speaking blessed are the poor in spirit now this week look what he says he says this week blessed are those who mourn for they'll be comforted now now look here a second i always tell you this i want you to read the bible in color not black and white it's okay to read that like so some of you read that and maybe you grew up in church and you're like yeah i knew what was coming next and others of you read that and it's like okay but if you really read that this is what it seems to be he's saying it's okay to read this and scratch your head he seems to be saying happy or the sad that's what he's saying he's like Happy are those who are sad. And, and that leaves you scratching your head a little bit, right? Can we just be honest? It's like Jesus is preaching a sermon of oxymorons, right? Two opposites put together, like rich are the poor kind of thing. Uh, young are the old. Skinny are the, you know, the other, whatever, right? I mean, you figure it out right? It's like he's putting together these oxymorons and he's saying, here's what it means to be happy. And so he says, blessed are those who mourn. We got to rip it apart, put it back together. We got to do this. You got to go here with me because my fear is you're going to read it in black and white and it's going to lose its color. I want to put color to it. Can we do that? He says, blessed, I fly, but blessed are those who mourn. I want you to know this, that in the, the language that he says this, which is Greek, you can forget that, but there would have been nine whoops, that's eight, nine different words he could have chose for mourn or grieve, nine. Like that's a lot, right? Blessed are those who mourn or grieve. He, he, had, he could have chosen one of nine words. Now, look here a second. Can I tell you there's something comforting about that to me? If you're new to the Bible, not the purpose of today's sermon, but if you're new to the Bible, here's what's comforting to me is when you read the Bible, the Bible is real about pain and sadness and disappointment. So if you're new to the Bible, let me just tell you that. The Bible is real. It doesn't sugarcoat it. It doesn't skirt from it. Bible, very real. In fact, we did a series, Where's God When Life Hurts? Because sometimes life hurts. Can I get one amen in the room? Just one? Yeah. Life hurts sometimes. Life stinks sometimes. Life's disappointing. And so the fact that there's nine words in their Greek language, like, wow, okay. Bible doesn't skirt that. But the word Jesus chose, this is interesting to me, is the strongest, most severe word for grieve or mourn that you could have chosen. It literally means this, the deep, deep, deep anguish and agony someone would feel when someone really, really close to them dies. It's something, it's a word that would have had, it would have captured the mind to say something has so overtaken me, I can't hide it from the people around me. And the way the word is written, this is key. If you write in your Bibles, you ought to write this. The way it is written is this. Blessed are those who mourn, not just this point in time, but blessed are those who mourn and keep mourning. I want you to know that. Blessed are those who mourn and continue to mourn. Jesus purposefully is using this word. And so what in the world is he talking about? It's, it's kind of like he's saying, hey, uh, somehow happy are those who are sad. Happy are those who grieve. What's he talking about? Well, here's what I don't think he's doing. I don't think he's saying happy are all those who just are sad for for whatever reason. Look here a second. I want you to get this. Why don't I think that? Because this message Jesus is preaching is like a pearl necklace. And so he's putting one after the other. And the first pearl was poor in spirit. What is it that makes me poor in spirit? What is it that causes me to be in debt? It's my what? Sin. And so I think what Jesus is saying is, blessed or happy are those who mourn over what God mourns over. What does God mourn over? He mourns over sin. So we can read it this way Blessed or happy are those who mourn and continue to mourn over sin. That's what Jesus is saying. Why are they blessed? Because they'll be comforted. We've got to rip it apart, put it back together. I want you to see this. So he's saying, happy are those who mourn and continue mourning over sin. Why? Because they'll be comforted. You're saying, well, what does that word comforted mean? Well, it comes from a Greek word. You can forget this, but it comes from a... I like to tell you this so you know I'm not making this up. It comes from a Greek word, parakaleo. Everybody say it out loud with me. Ready? Parakaleo. Go impress somebody today. Okay. But, but here's what it means, to come alongside and to bring comfort. But here's why I made you say it out loud, because it sounds like another word you find in the New Testament... In the Greek, that is paraclete parakaleo. They're from the same word. And paraklete, you have any idea what that's attached to? Jesus used it when he was describing the Holy Spirit. He said the Holy Spirit is the paraclete. He is the comforter. You see, when Jesus was describing the Holy Spirit that resides in everybody who says yes to Jesus, the Holy Spirit has two main functions when Jesus was describing to convict of sin and to bring comfort to the life of the believer to convict of sin, to bring comfort. It's as though Jesus in this sermon is saying if you want to experience the comfort that leads to happiness, it begins with mourning over your sin. If you want to experience this deep inner peace that only the Holy Spirit can bring, it begins with grieving over your sin. Everybody look here a second. I just want to talk to you. I love you guys. I've been praying all morning, all week actually. I've agonized over this sermon. Can I just be honest about that? Agonized over this sermon. I think this morning is going to be a little different. Can we, can we deal with that? So if you're new, you might feel a little different tone in here. If you're somebody who comes all the time like, wow, this feels a little different, right? I think it's going to be a little different. I don't got tons of funny stories this morning, right? Like, I don't think the conversation lends itself to that. I, I, and I also believe this, guys, that there's no shortcut. We've got to talk about this. We've got to talk about what it means to mourn and grieve over our sin you know why? Because it's not natural. Stay with me on this. Let's just be honest in this room. For the next 30 minutes, let's be honest. Our culture does not naturally mourn over sin. Our culture does not naturally... We might mourn over the results and impact of sin that we see, but we don't naturally mourn over sin. Think about it. We live in a culture that is addicted to fun and entertainment. Right? Right? We live in a culture that's addicted to fun. We live in a make-me-laugh culture. And so our culture doesn't naturally mourn over sin. Can we be honest? Let's just be honest, right? Let's quit playing games. Let's just be honest. The reason we don't naturally mourn over sin, can we just be honest about this? Sin sells. Sin sells records, makes good songs. Sin makes these juicy movie plots, makes for a good book, right? Sin... Provides lots of material for late night TV. Sin sells. And there's this sense to which, in this culture in which we live, Jesus comes and says, Hey, listen, happiness begins with mourning over your sin. It feels counterintuitive, but at minimum, it's countercultural. Can we just say it this way? Jesus sounds like a real downer. <laughs> He sounds like a real downer. It's like, Jesus, I don't know that you're going to fit that well. And yet in this culture, this make-me-laugh culture, this culture that's addicted to fun, this culture that's addicted to entertainment, might I remind you one out of three of us say we're happy? Like something's missing, and so I want to lean into what Jesus is saying. But listen, listen, look here. Some of you grew up in church. Can I just share a dirty little secret, and that's this, that in church we can be really, really hard on culture? Come on. Some of you are like uncomfortable, like, where's he going to go with this? Right, we can. It's like, oh, Hollywood and them people out there and them and that and culture and that and the world. And, And can I tell you something? The reason we've got to have this conversation is not only it's not natural for our culture to mourn sin, stay with me, but it's not natural in the 21st century for the church to mourn sin and to grieve over sin. I just want to say it and put it out there and let it waft a little bit. But it's true. In the 21st century, there's one of two ways that churches deal with sin. The predominant way, the way that's gaining steam is this. We quit talking about it. You know why? It's not cool. It's not palatable. It's not relevant. It doesn't draw crowds. So you quit talking about sin. It's like, ah, oh, I don't want to offend anybody, right? Yet we all know it's like present. We all know it's there, but we just don't talk about it, right? And so we just quit talking about it. But but, but then there's other churches, that's all they talk about. But they talk about it this way. They talk about it in a way that condemns them sinners, criticizes them sinners. And so churches today aren't naturally mourning over sin. We either have quit talking about it or we talk about it in a condemning on our spiritual high horse kind of way. And you know what happens? Stay with me. You know what happens in churches that either quit or condemn? In those churches, you know what happens with sin, which is present? They cover it up. Because it's more important for me to impress you with my image than to be real and honest about what we all know is present. You see, it's not natural for culture. It's not natural for the church. It's not natural for us as individuals. Let's just be real about that, right? It's not natural. In fact, very early, it doesn't take us long to learn ways to navigate sin, I mean, there's all kinds of ways we navigate sin. I put a couple on the screen. First is this, we hide or deny it, right? We figure out how to deal with sin that way. We hide or deny the fact that there's sin. And, and, and here's the crazy thing. Can we just say this? No one teaches us how to do this. Like we come out the womb knowing how to do this, right? Like my earliest memory, I, I, I was almost sure I shared this a couple months ago, but people are telling me I didn't. But I remember when this happened to me in kindergarten. Like, I remember I loved my teacher. Uh, Miss Appleman was her name. I loved her, right? I mean, she was incredible. But I remember the day she turned her back to the class. And I, for whatever reason, I don't know if a demon possessed me or what <laughs> took place, but, but you may not know that, but I'm a really good whistler. And she turned her back to the class and... Gave me an opportunity to do what? Whistle. I'm not sure exactly what I whistled. Did this, my, <laughs> something like that. I don't know, but I, I let out a robust whistle. And she spun around, and I'm like, rut row, you know? And I knew it was a bad day. And she said, who whistled? Guess what I did? I went, Shh. no eye contact, right? And I'm sitting there, and I'm like, oh, Lord. I hope somebody didn't see me do it, and I hope if they did, they don't tell on me. And I remember she could not get anybody to confess, and I sure shooting wasn't gonna. And so I don't know what possessed her to do this. To this day, I don't understand it, but this is what she did. I remember it like it was yesterday. I think I feel guilty about it, but she stood us in front of the class, all of us, all 20 students, and she said, if you won't confess, I'm going to find out who whistled, and she made us one-by-one whistle. No, why? This truly happened. I'm damaged. I need counseling. But she went down the list, down the row. And I remember Sally stood right here, and she's like, like that. i like, that doesn't sound like the right one. Festus is over here. She came to me. I remember clearly. I think I am guilty. I remember her looking at me. Danny, it's your turn. And this is what I did. I went, I can't whistle, is what I said to her. <laughs> she said, sit down. Fest is your turn. He whistled. Sounds like the right whistle. Fest has gotten trouble for my whistling. <laughs> who taught me how to do that, nobody? I just didn't want to get in trouble. See, you're judging me. We do it all the time, don't we? We blame others for our sin. That's the way this whole story of God kind of started out. Adam blamed who? Eve. <laughs> Eve blamed who? The serpent. Oh, by the way, God, the serpent you made. <laughs> right? So it just becomes easier to say, hey, I wouldn't have lost my temper if my wife wasn't snagging me so much, right? We blame others for what it is that we do. Not only that, we minimalize it. At least I didn't kill anybody, right? At least I didn't commit a crime. Beyond minimalizing it, we rationalize it. We begin to think I didn't have any other choice. I had to get out of a bad situation. Beyond that, we compare it. It's not as bad as what this guy does or that guy does. And here's what's common in 21st century. We normalize it everybody's doing it. It's kind of a new day and age. It, I mean, it, it's just kind of the, the, the new right, so to speak. Whatever the case, wherever you find yourself in there, here's what I know. We have found ways in our culture to navigate sin. And into that, Jesus comes and he says this. Jesus comes and is it possible that he's saying the reason that one out of three of you say you're happy and that one out of three isn't happy all the time is because somehow we have minimalized sin, normalized sin, somehow we're blaming it on others, denying it. Is it possible that the secret to happiness is our response to sin? Is it possible that the core of what Jesus is saying in this particular verse is simply this, that my true happiness is in proportion to my godly sorrow over my sin? I think that's what he's saying. I think what he's saying is, is that true happiness is in proportion to experiencing and understanding and getting a hold of what it means to truly be sorry over my sin. Now look here a second. We've got to unpack that because there's all kinds of different ways to feel sorry. In fact, can we, can we say this? There's a guy whose name is Paul. Paul. And he wrote three letters to a church in Corinth. You can forget that, but two of them made their way into the New Testament. But he wrote three. In the first letter, you ought to test me on this later, in chapter 5, he's like a dad coming to the church, and he's kind of scolding them. Do you know why he's scolding them? Because there was sin among them, and they were kind of proud of it. Like they weren't taking sin seriously. And so he's kind of into them like a dad would be his kids apparently his talk paid off because when you get to the second letter in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter seven, he says something powerful, absolutely powerful. Look at what he says. He's talking to this group of people. He says, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I don't regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. Look at this, look at this. For you became sorrowful as God intended. Look here a second. That means there must be a way to become sorrowful unlike God intended. Hmm. That's interesting. And so you are not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. What is he saying? He's saying there's two kinds of sorrow. When it comes to our sin, there's a worldly sorrow, there's a godly sorrow, a worldly sorrow that leaves regrets. Pay attention now. Some of us are like, I'm sorry, all the stuff in my life, and yet we got all this, this regret, and we can't seem to get out from underneath of it. And he said, but there's a godly sorrow. It leads to repentance. And that repentance leads to salvation. You see, you already know that there's different ways of being sorry. That's all he's saying. And he's saying there's a worldly sorrow. In a nutshell, what does a worldly sorrow look like? Can I give you maybe three or four things? First and foremost, a worldly sorrow is horizontal only. It doesn't have this dynamic. You know what a worldly sorrow is? It's sorry that it got caught. Tracking with me? It's so, and so it's, it, it's, it's only horizontal. Not only that. You know what a worldly sorrow is? It's emotional only. So it got caught and, oh, I can't believe. And it's, but listen, a godly sorrow is emotional too, not emotional only. Beyond that, a worldly sorrow is passive. I don't know how that happened to me and I don't know what's going to happen. And I hope it doesn't happen again. And a worldly sorrow is Proud. It's proud, you know what I mean by that? Like a worldly sorrow gets caught for speeding because it was going 20 miles an hour over the speed limit and all it can think about is those crooked cops. I can't believe they're gonna give me a ticket for whatever, whatever, right? See, that's worldly sorrow. It's proud, somebody else's fault, and I can't be. Worldly sorrow is, I'm sorry I got caught. Worldly sorrow is, I hope it doesn't happen again. It's passive. And what Paul is saying is when it comes to our sin, when it comes to mourning over and grieving over our sin, it's godly sorrow that God desires for us to, to grab a hold of because that's the path to comfort that is the path to true happiness. So it begs the question, what in the world is godly sorrow? Godly sorrow. And i got five or six things that I want you to write down. Now look here a second. I'm going to lead you on a journey here this morning. I've I've already done it twice. I already know what's coming. You don't. Okay. We're going to go on a journey. I've got to say this at the outset. I've been deeply impacted and influenced by a guy named Thomas Watson. Probably you've never heard of him. An old Puritan writer who wrote on repentance. And I've been deeply impacted by it but I think his writings lead us to what godly sorrow is. So what is it first and foremost? Godly sorrow, I want you to write this down. Godly sorrow allows the Holy Spirit to show me my sin. That's where it begins. Godly sorrow allows the, the very first step in godly sorrow is seeing my sin, becoming aware of the dirt in my life, allowing the Holy Spirit to point out the dirt in my life. I love how Psalm 139 puts it. At the very end of that chapter, the psalmist prays this prayer. This is a passage worth writing down, guys. Imagine praying this Search me, God, know my heart. Test me, know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. What's he doing? He's saying, I want you to come into the rooms of my heart and I want you to see if there's dirt. I want you to see if there's any offensive ways in there. Look here. Why is that an important prayer? Listen, can I just tell you why that's an important prayer? Because you and I get comfortable living with our own dirt. Come on. We get comfortable living with our own dirt. You see, here's how I know this. You're probably like me, but, but we have a lot of people over to eat. You know, Thanksgiving, we have 20 or so people in there. And and usually we eat around our dining room table, which is in our dining room, which is carpeted, which means this, not everybody who comes and eats at our house has clean shoes and not everybody who comes and eats at our house hits their mouth when they're eating, right? You tracking with me? And so over the years, man, there's stuff and, you know, our dining room carpet, Used to look like our living room carpet, but doesn't look quite the same, right? And, and here's the deal. Usually on a normal day, like today I'll go home, it won't bother me one bit. Not one bit would bother me. Do you know when it starts to bother me? Do you know when I start to all of a sudden think about it? When we've invited somebody to come over? And then I'm kind of OCD this way. But all of a sudden, that stain that I've been living with, all of a sudden, somebody's coming to our house. They're gonna sit around this table and there's that dirt spot that I didn't care about yesterday. You see, here's what he's saying. I wanna invite the Holy Spirit in because I get comfortable with my own dirt. I get comfortable with it. I live with it. And so the preacher Isaiah said it this way. He said, okay, come, come on in and, and, and now let us reason together. Let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. I want you to stay with me on this. The words I have in bold, let us reason together. Some of you grew up knowing this verse. Here's what it means. Let's have a discussion till we come to an agreement. That's what it means. Let's discuss this till you come to an agreement. See, it makes me think of a story I heard by a pastor. His name was Pastor Morris. Morris. And he was telling this story about a friend of his that owned a carpet cleaning company. And he had trouble finding some good help, but he, he brought in this young, this young boy who was going to be a carpet cleaner for him. And so they had a house. They were supposed to clean all the carpets. And he set the boy loose. And he said, I'll be back when you're done. The boy got done cleaning all the carpets. The boss came in. And the boss did what the boss normally did. He walked through the house to see how the carpet cleaning went, right? Right. As the boss walked through the house, he found a spot, a pretty good-sized spot, that had apparently been missed. Maybe the kid just got in a hurry, maybe, I don't know, but it was a big old spot of dirt. And so what the boss did was this, stay with me on this, he called the kid and he said, why don't you come on in here and come into this room? And when the kid came into that room, the boss stood right here at the edge of that dirt spot and he said, why don't you stand there? He had the boy stand here, there's a big dirt spot in between them. And he says to the boy, he says, look down. The boy looks down, and he says, what do you see? And the boy looks down. He looks back at him. He says, I see dirt in the carpet. And this is what the boss said. He said, great. Now we can work together. You see, here's the point. The point is that when I invite the Holy Spirit into my life, that's exactly what he does because the boss The boss, after that encounter, went back out to his truck, began to write the invoice, and it was at that moment he almost felt and could sense that it was at that moment the Holy Spirit brought back to his mind and almost stood in front of him and brought back to his mind a conversation that he had that morning with his wife. And it was almost as though the Holy Spirit said to that man, Hey, look down, what do you see? And that man at that moment realized that that morning he had been short with his wife, dismissive, rude to his wife. And at that moment, he realized that the Spirit of God was pointing out something in his life that he was not aware of up until that time. And when he called it what it was, it was almost as though the Holy Spirit said, great, now we can work together. See, i got to invite the Holy Spirit to come into the rooms of my life to see what's there. Seeing my sin is a gift. Let me say it again. Seeing my sin is a gift. God's spirit, will use God's word to point out sin in my life. For all of us in the room who say, I don't got sin in my life. Carpets in my heart are completely clean. Here's what John would say. That when I say I have no sin, I am lying to myself and I'm calling God a liar. Wow, that's big. You see, when I hear a sermon, read a part of scripture, and it begins to expose a mode of an attitude an action that somehow has dirt in it, that is the beginning of blessing. That is the beginning of the road to comfort, which leads to happiness. Godly sorrow allows the Holy Spirit to show me my sin, but it leads to this. Godly sorrow then agonizes with the Holy Spirit over my sin. I want you to write it down. I think we missed this many times. He shows me my sin, and then as I stand there in his presence, my sin looks different. My sin, my sin looks different in the presence of a holy God. Can we just say it this way? That my pride, my pride looks different when I'm standing in front of a holy God. My selfishness looks different when I'm standing in front of a holy God. My my complaining spirit, my lustful thoughts look different when I'm standing in front of a holy God. You tracking with me? My self-righteous attitude looks different standing in front of a holy God. You see, here's the deal. When I stand in front of God, all of a sudden my sin looks different. That same preacher, Isaiah, had the chance to stand in front of a holy God. And when he stood in front, understood he's standing in front of a holy God, here's what the preacher, Isaiah, said. He said, woe is me, I'm ruined It's like all of a sudden, what's easy to minimalize and gloss over, all of a sudden, I see it for what it is. All of a sudden, I realize the depth of my sin. Listen close. If, if somehow standing in front of God doesn't change the way I see my sin, look here a second, my God is too small. Somehow, if it doesn't change the way that I see my sin, my God is too small. I don't know if you knew this or not. Did you know that you could grieve the Holy Spirit? Did you know that? Like, like the Bible is clear. You, can, you and I can grieve the Holy Spirit. Here's what it says Ephesians 4. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you're sealed for the day of redemption. Well, what is it that causes me to grieve the Holy Spirit? Well, that verse is found in a zip code in a neighborhood. And it's interesting to look what's around that verse. Look at what's right before it. Put off falsehood. Why? Grieves the Holy Spirit. Put off anger that leads to sin. Why? Grieves the Holy Spirit. Don't give the devil a foothold. Anyone who's stealing must steal no longer, but must work. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, only that which builds up others. Look what's behind the verse. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Why? it Grieves the Holy Spirit. Like somehow I think the Holy Spirit is grieved when you and I don't see sin the way God sees sin, when we don't see God the way he really is. Because God, listen close, agonizes over your sin. You're saying, prove it. I'd be happy to. Isaiah says this. Jesus was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. As one whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. He was pierced for our wrong stuff. He was crushed for all of our evil stuff. Upon him was the punishment or chastisement that brought us peace. His wounds are what heal us. That's talking about God in the flesh, Jesus, man of sorrows, You see, when I allow the Holy Spirit to come into the rooms of my heart and I realize I'm standing in front of a holy God, I begin to agonize with the Holy Spirit over my sin, which leads to the next thing, and I want you to write this down. Godly sorrow then agrees with the Holy Spirit by confessing my sin. That's what confession means. I come into agreement. I call it what he calls it. I'm going to tell you something. This is so important, guys. Some of you have been walking in a circle walking in a circle, particularly when it comes to your sin. Here's what I think he's saying. I think when it comes to confession, it means I got to call it out. Write it down somewhere. I got to call it out. I got to come into agreement and call it out. Name it. Name it. Why? Because not all sorrow is the same. Let me give you a little free parenting advice. My kids are grown and gone, so now I can give advice, right? I learned this the hard way. Kids, kids, kids kind of navigate stuff kind of in different ways. And my kids at different times, I know this is hard to believe, but didn't get along. I know it's hard to believe, right? But they used to fight and bicker and this, that, and the other thing. And so you know what I was a parent would do when they were younger? When, when, when they would bicker with each other, I would say to the one who was the offender, go tell your brother you're sorry. Right? And so you know what they would do? They would go tell their brother, sorry. Yes or no question, were they sorry? No. You know what they were? They were afraid. They were afraid of me, and they should have been. (laughs) But they weren't sorry. They weren't sorry one bit. All of a sudden, it dawned on me that what I was trying to lead them into is not even close to where they were going. And so I changed, go tell your brother you're sorry, to this. Go ask your brother to forgive you for hurting you by. Will you forgive me? for hurting you by ignoring you? Will you forgive me for hurting you by saying something mean about you? Will you forgive me for you fill in the blank? You see, here's the deal. When it comes to God, here's what happens. You do it, I do it, we've all done it. We get to the end of the day. Sorry, God, for whatever I did that was wrong throughout the day. (sighs) Are we sorry, yes or no? I just want to be covered. We good? All right. And I think what he's saying is this. No, no, mourning over my sin is you come in, show me where the dirt is. I want to agonize over it, and then I want to call it what you call it. And when he does that, I'm going to warn you. I double-dog dare you to do this. When he does that, he'll show you things you didn't know were there. You know how I know that? Because he's been doing it to me all week. That's how I know. And he'll begin to show you pride. He'll begin to show you insecurity. He'll begin to show you a selfish, self-righteous attitude. And I think when it comes to agreeing with the Holy Spirit, it is about calling it out. I love what Pastor Jonathan led us into. Psalm 32. In the living Bible, it's a paraphrase, but I love how it puts it. What happiness for those whose guilt has been forgiven. What joys when sins are covered over. What relief for those who've confessed, agreed with God about their sins. God has cleared their record. Look at this. There was a time when I wouldn't admit what a sinner I was. But my dishonesty made me miserable. That's the opposite of happiness, by the way. Filled my days with frustration. Some of you are feeling that today. All day, all night, your hand was heavy on me, strength evaporated like water on a sunny day. Finally, I admitted all my sins to you, Stop trying to hide them. And I said, I'll confess them. Guess what? It's almost like the exclamation point, and you forgave me. My guilt's gone. See, there's a freedom that comes when we confess and call it out and name it. Let me tell you one of the things that happens. When I confess my sins, Satan can't do what he's really, really good at. You know what Satan is? He's an accuser. That's what it's called in the Bible. He's an accuser of the brethren. Well, he can't accuse me of what I've already confessed. It's like, hey, God, did you know this about Dan? Yep, talk to me this morning. Like He's already called it. He's already named it. You see, godly sorrow agonizes, and then it agrees, and it confesses, but then there's something else, and you've got to get this. This is, this is where we stop, and we can't stop. Godly sorrow actively works with the Holy Spirit to kill sin. Actively works with the Holy Spirit to kill my sin. You got to go here with me, guys. We're going to be done in a second. You got to go here with me. Here's what Paul says in Romans If you live by sin's dictates, that's the it's, sin's dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you'll live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. What is he saying? He's saying worldly sorrows, passive godly sorrow is active, and it actively works with the Holy Spirit to kill sin. Let me, let me tell you a story. I heard it from another pastor. His name was Matt Chandler. Some of you have heard his name. Some of you haven't. A great, great speaker. He was telling about how he enjoyed watching beast versus man kind of shows. So animal versus the man and he, and he watched this one show of bloopers. Uh, and this show had a man walking into the scene and on set with a lion on a leash, almost like you'd walk a dog. And he said to the lion, he wanted to show that the lion was trained and tame. sit, lion sat, big old lion. Lay down, lion laid down. For whatever reason... They had decided that this would be a good backdrop to bring in a woman dressed in a bathing suit carrying a bottle of shampoo. I don't know who determined this, but they thought maybe we could sell shampoo if this woman comes in and lays against the lion holding up this bottle of shampoo. So that's what she did. She came waltzing in, lions just laying there because it's tame, it's trained. She leans against the lion, she holds up the bottle of shampoo, and guess what happened? That lion took its paw, knocks the bottle of shampoo out of her hands and mauled the lady. She didn't die. She didn't die, but mauled the lady. That's not even the most interesting part of the story. The most interesting part of the story is what happened on social media right after that. Because on social media right after that, you know what happened? People were saying, I can't believe what that lion did to that woman. Guys, let that sink in. You can't believe that a carnivore that can eat 40 pounds of meat in one sitting did that? What's the point? Look here. There is a lion loose in the cage. There's a lion loose in your heart. And too often the way we deal with sin, well, you know, I really struggle with pride, but I'm just trying to tame it and train it. I'm kind of selfish, but I'm just trying to manage it. I kind of grew up legalistic and I kind of got a self-righteous attitude, but I'm just trying to manage it a little bit. And what Paul is saying is this. He simply is saying, quit trying to tame the lion. Don't be surprised when the lion does what the lion does. Instead, instead as God points this out and you call it what it is, work with the Holy Spirit to kill it. <laughs> to, to somehow look at the pride in your life and say, "I want it gone." To look at the lust I and say, I want to assassinate it. To look at the sin in your life and actively call it what it is and then actively partner with the Holy Spirit to kill it. That's what he's saying. You see, John Piper says this, killing our sin is not optional. It's mortal combat. Either sin dies or we die. So godly sorrow somehow says I'm going to actively work with the Spirit of God to call it what it is. I'm done sugarcoating it and then I'm going to work with the Spirit of God to kill it. But it doesn't stop there, praise God. The last step is this, godly sorrow aligns, aligns its life with the Holy Spirit to walk away from sin. That somehow godly sorrow calls sin what it is, but then it walks away. It turns from it. That's what the Bible calls repentance. Repentance is walking away and walking towards. Hear me say that. You cannot just walk away from sin. You got to walk towards something because if you don't walk to something and just from something, you're going to end up right back what you walked from. And so what he's saying is that somehow godly sorrow repents and walks away from sin. i got, I got to correct some of your understanding because it, yours is like mine. I grew up, some of you grew up in church, and when I heard people use the word repent, here's what I thought, angry old preacher yelling at me. Some of you grew up that way, you, you understand I, I heard that word repent, it's like it was a mean word, it was an angry word. It's like, repent! Like, yeah, that's the way I used to hear it. Like, mm, okay, you know, I'm gonna. I think it's the wrong picture. Can I just say that? I think it's the wrong picture. Now stay with me. A very important time of the service. Very important time of the service. I want you to write these words down. Repentance is sweet surrender. It's sweet surrender. Repentance is saying, I'm going to call my sin what it is. I'm going to work with the Spirit of God to kill it. And then I'm going to walk towards Something. I'm going to trust that God loves me more than I know today. I'm going to trust that He knows what's best for me, and I'm going to trust that He knows more than I do. Repentance is turning away from the sin that I've called out and killed and walking towards what God has for me in life, even if I don't understand it, even if it doesn't make sense, even if it's countercultural. And what Paul is saying is that godly sorrow is what leads to life and salvation worldly sorrow leaves regret and it's only that godly sorrow that brings comfort in my life guys look here we're about done when i get when i start getting godly sorrow certain things happen when all of a sudden i get godly sorrow i won't celebrate what kills me i can't just laugh off my sin I can't just all of a sudden laugh off what it is that God says kills me. I can't cover up what deteriorates me. I can't keep covering up what it is that deteriorates me. Some of you grew up in church, listen to me. Some of you grew up in church, please hear me. And and here's what you grew up knowing, that the most important thing for you is to cover up what you're struggling with. You know why? Because the most important thing is that people be impressed with your image. And and what's happening is from the inside out, you're deteriorating. Guys in churches all across this country are struggling with lust. And they have no idea how in the world to walk towards repentance that leads to comfort, that leads to happiness. Because they somehow have been told, cover up. And as long as you cover up, it's going to contaminate and deteriorate. Not only that, but I won't and cannot keep condemning and criticizing in others what I've spotted in me. Paraphrase when I get godly sorrow, I'll get off my spiritual high horse. Can we just say it that way? And then last but not least, I'll start confessing my sin to others. I'll start confessing my sin to others. You see, here's what he's saying. Godly sorrow starts here, but when I have been snippy and dismissive and rude with my wife, godly sorrow goes here. Godly sorrow begins here, but when I don't want to do what the boss tells me to do and I cuss him out and show him all kinds of disrespect, godly sorrow goes here. See how that works? And what he says is when I get a hold of godly sorrow, all of a sudden something begins to pop. What if, what if this morning we're not happy because we're not mourning over our sin with godly sorrow? I'm going to invite the band out. We're going to finish with a song, and I'm, I'm ple- I don't always do this, but I'm pleading that no one leave the room. If at all possible, I'm going to ask that no one leave the room. My wife's in charge of the nursery, and so your baby's fine. I mean it. Your baby's fine. I couldn't imagine somebody better to have your kid right now. I want to talk to you. What is it this morning that God is calling you to? My biggest fear is that I'll preach this sermon, you'll leave, go home, and see how your brackets are doing and forget about everything I've said. What's God calling you to? For some of you, maybe this morning, the the most powerful application of everything that we said is just to invite God into the rooms of your life. It's been a while and you've gotten used to living with your own dirt. Then I'm going to ask you to do that as we sing this song. I'm going to ask you to sit there as they sing this song and say, God, come on in. Show me. Show me the dirt. Show me the stuff I've been walking on. I got used to it. For others of you, I want you to To sit there as we sing this song and maybe he showed you the dirt. But maybe it's been a while since you've seen your dirt in the presence of a holy God. And maybe this morning is the morning where you look at that dirt different because of who he is. And you realize that the one who is the man of sorrows is standing on the other side of that patch. For some of you, maybe, maybe you feel that agony in your heart, but maybe this morning is the morning you start calling it out, God, I am so sarcastic with everyone because when I let you show me what's in there, I'm really insecure because I'm afraid because I don't really trust you. God, it really is hard for me when they get ahead and I work hard and nobody recognizes me. When I look at it, God, there's pride in there. I'm an arrogant person. God, when I look at my neighbors and the stuff they do, it's crazy. And yet when I let you come in and look at the carpet in my heart, oh my goodness, I am so self-righteous. And maybe this morning's the morning you just start calling it out. For some of you, maybe this morning's the morning you begin to work with the Holy Spirit and say, I'm done. I'm done trying to train my pride. I'm done trying to tame my selfishness. I'm done trying to manage my lust. And God, I want to work with you to kill it. I'm going to invite people into my life. I'm going to invite people to hold me accountable. I'm going to work with you to kill what's alive in me because it keeps mauling me, keeps keeps eating me alive. For some of you, maybe it's going from that process and saying, I'm going to align my life with you. Begs a question. What produces godly sorrow? What is it that produces it? Guilt? Is it guilt? Not on your life. It's an old testament passage, Zechariah, chapter 12. Look at this. I pour out in the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem spirit of grace. Supplication. And they'll look on me, that's Jesus whom they've pierced. Yes, they'll mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Look here, guys. What if we grieved over our sin just as though someone died? Because the truth of the matter is somebody did. Jesus came and was pierced for my sin. See, the secret is this is my godly sorrow is produced by his grace. And that's what brings his comfort. Grace produces what guilt never could, guys. And somehow when I align my life with him, it always takes me to the base of an old crooked wooden cross. And that's where the power of grace and the comfort of forgiveness found. So God, across this room, every head bowed, every eye closed, every head bowed, just, just please honor that this morning. I'm going to ask you not to waste this moment. I'm going to ask you not to waste this time. I'm going to ask you to begin talking to God. Maybe invite Him into the rooms of your life. Maybe this morning you begin the process of repentance, which comes with godly sorrow that leads to comfort that somehow takes us to true happiness in our life.